0: Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with the news. Faceless men are in raincoats outside the studio. Have I told you that? They are absorbing the radio signal with their umbrellas, ensuring no one outside these walls will hear me reporting their location. I have called out their names 500 times, but have heard no response. Likely because they lack faces. I must stay inside until help arrives. Thankfully, I found Ben's secret stash of brownies in his locker before my shift, or I would have starved. I've eaten the whole tray. Somehow, they've only made me hungrier. They must be. Oh, oh! Oh, I've made a terrible mistake. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. Public
1: Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King Book Club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And joining us via Zoom, a Los Angeles-based author, director, and producer whose work includes the feature Before the Dawn, HBO's Femme Fatales, and of course, the Stephen King dollar baby Paranoid an associate member of the American Society of Cinematographers, and a contributing technical editor for American Cinematographer Magazine. Please welcome to the show, Jay Holbin. Jay, how are you? I'm fantastic,
2: thank you very much.
1: How are you? I am so excited to be talking <laughs> to you. Ever since the Stephen King Rules Dollar Baby Film Festival, I've wanted to talk about Paranoid.
2: <laughs> well, that's cool. I'm happy to talk yeah,
1: about Paranoid. That makes you the most convenient person to talk to, really. <laughs> <laughs> before we can get to the interview proper get to the real meat of it cm she guards the rest of this interview with her life so i'm gonna throw things over to cm cm take it away
0: all right so no big deal no pressure if you don't answer these correctly nothing terrible is gonna happen i do have a couple of envelopes that i might have to send out though <laughs> like 500 them. <laughs> So for the first question, what was your introduction to Stephen King's work, either book or movie?
2: My very first introduction to Stephen King, my brother gave me a copy of Thinner when I was 12, I think, somewhere around junior high. And it melted my brain. I <laughs> was blown away by it. It's not even you know, one of Stephen's greatest works, but somehow he just knew that that would connect with me. And I was hooked. I, I immediately went out to get the next thing that I could, which turned out to be uh, Night Shift, mm. uh, nice. followed by Scout and Crew, followed by, mm. I think, Different Seasons and It. And I was I was just sucked in. And so, yeah, forever grateful for the big bro for saying, here, <laughs> read this. He's probably Sinners. just trying to get rid of me and shut me up.
0: <laughs> that, I think you're our first Bachman first. Yeah, yeah. which is really cool. We've covered *Thinner* on our show, and it is—it's dark. It's so dark.
1: <laughs> The—I know every time we people bring it up, they say that they couldn't eat pie for like a uh, a year. <laughs> that wasn't a problem for me at twelve. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of the movie adaptation of it? Like most adaptations of King, it, it's it's deeply
2: mediocre to a little a little bit of a miss for me. <laughs> Uh, it's certainly not one of my favorites. Sure. Mm -hmm.
0: All right. Second question on our podcast, we talk about what we refer to as Stephen King moments, things that stand out to us in his work. Do you have a Stephen King moment from any of his work?
2: Absolutely. There are uh, two moments that come to to mind immediately for me. The first was reading Pet Sematary, which which was an early read for me in the discovery of King, uh, a true, truly terrifying book. Uh, and it was the first time that a book ever made me physically jump. Oh, you we know, can with a scare, uh, and that was when Church came back, and and reading that sentence made me like literally jump and be like, "Oh my god!" And the second would be reading The Shining when the woman from Room Two Three Seven grabs Danny by the neck, and the
1: chapter ends. <laughs> I literally threw the book across the room. <laughs> That is, I, that is That moment is a horrifying cliffhanger. Oh, my God.
0: I, I love the physicality of your Stephen King moment.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's the, the memory. You know, that's what mm-hmm. really creates that kind of uh, visceral memory is that it isn't just, it's a physical reaction, right? Which yeah. is rare when you're reading something. It's, it's easy to get that from somebody sitting in a the theater. But to get that off of reading it is, is rare. And I, I remember seeing an episode of Friends where... Joey was reading The Shining and he put it in the freezer, and I completely related to that. I was like, oh man, I I totally would have had I thought of that, I totally would have done that. This that's where this thing has to go,
0: yeah. I've turned a book away from me, like turned it so the spine was facing my bed, my pillow. Not, I don't know why, it just felt right.
1: Freezer books are like that's a a phrase that I did not know was actually pretty common. Mm -hmm. I think there's. There's even podcasts dedicated to freezer books. So oh, really? You, yeah, you put them in there so they can't get you.
0: <laughs> that's a great idea for yeah. podcast.
1: No, uh, this just occurred to me because you talk about your physical reaction from uh, reading those. I, I mean, you are a cinematographer. Did you for, have you always read and had a very strong visuals in your head?
2: Absolutely, and and I think that's one of the strengths of King's work is that to me they're extraordinarily visual. I think that they live in in a movie in my head as I'm reading them, which is part of the frustration with so many filmmakers that don't seem to be able to adapt his work. Because to me, very often it's incredibly cinematic and it's incredibly visual. And you really just have to you have to find this of what he's written and not the literal translation or not trying to just go for the scares or, or, the, or the gross factor, which is not really what he's about.
0: Do you think that because the dollar baby community is what it is being one that's a little more collaborative than probably other film communities and you're, you're having opportunities to adapt short stories that other people have adapted and people are so kind in sharing that experience with directors. And so you can learn from what other people have done. Do you feel like that makes sort of the dollar baby adaptations, it kind of makes them stand out or different in a, a unique way than other adaptations?
2: Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt. It's a it's a close-knit community that, like you said, that shares and is very supportive of each other. But also, like you just said, the, the ability to see so many different iterations, especially like All That You Love Will Be Carried Away, which has been done four or five times now by different filmmakers. So you get a chance to see different takes on it, which is very cool. And I've never seen anybody be territorial or angry or frustrated about that. They seem to really embrace that idea. Uh, And the community is pretty tightly interwoven. You know, There are a few people that that really help to bring everybody together. It's a it's a nice little group of a support group of <laughs> Stephen King lovers,
1: you know. We've already gotten your thoughts on thinner. Do you have a favorite or least favorite Stephen King adaptation? Oh, for Apple! Oh, oh, wow! Um, <laughs> I have to
2: be a little bit careful here because I know these filmmakers. Um, so my my favorite is probably the pretty common. And, and it, there's a, there's a list of them, but Shawshank Redemption is of course one of the most extraordinary adaptations uh, of King's work. And, and honestly, what I felt was, was a mediocre novella. It never really resonated with me. So when, when I heard that somebody was making that film, I was like, why? <laughs> and it's brilliant. You know, it, it's beyond brilliant. But Darabont, and that's a perfect example of the adaptation. He takes the spirit of what Stephen wrote, so that you don't know what he changed because it all feels like, oh yeah, that was all in the book. And then you are in the novel, and you reread it and go, oh wow, that, none of that was in there. Mm-hmm. It, and it's perfect. I, I think Stand By Me, Misery, Dolores Claiborne, these are you know some of my absolute favorite adaptations. Oh, least favorite? Oh man. Well, speaking personally, I wanted to do an adaptation of Gerald's Game oh, um, yeah. and had talked to... Stephen about it and at the time we talked about it he was still holding on to it personally i'm a little frustrated in what mike Flanagan did with gerald's game I, I think that he hit some great notes but didn't quite hit all of them but that all comes back to my personal bias because i lived with that for so long mm-hmm. and really wanted to do that so i'm jealous uh, <laughs> and here and, and I, I think it could have been
1: stronger I'd, I'd never considered that as a filmmaker what like having that vision in your head of how you would do something and then suddenly seeing it and how it stacks up to how it lived in your head that that's got to be a wild experience it's frustrating it's a frustrating <laughs> experience, you
2: know it, it's frustrating both when it works and you're like oh yeah they did that and then when it doesn't you're like no <laughs> <laughs> I, I neglected to mention actually that the absolute least favorite of all time is the Dark Tower adaptation.
0: Uh, that's, no one's going to disagree so. yeah. with that. That's-
2: I actually have never been so angry walking out of a movie. As a matter of fact, I, I, I screamed at the screen when the film was done. <laughs> um, and, and half of the audience applauded.
0: Well, uh, at, at your scream, I assume.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, it was profanity and, uh, and yeah. It well, well-deserved.
0: I would love to see your take on The Dark Tower.
1: <laughs> yes.
2: Uh, actually, um, it's, it, I, I would, too. In 2005, I think, I did an adaptation of a chapter of Gunslinger under the auspices of pitching it as uh, like an HBO series that would be a season per book. Mm. Oh, uh, <laughs> and I had sent that off to Stephen, and found out just pretty much immediately after I sent it that the rights were already assigned. JJ Abrams had him at the time, uh, and I was super frustrated. And I don't think Stephen ever even opened or read it. I don't think he could have. But we, we started basically the pilot of the Toll chapter uh, of the Gunslinger, and I was really really proud of, of how that was
1: working. But oh well.
0: I don't oh, don't give up on that. It, because I don't think anybody was happy with the Dark Tower, so mm-hmm. it's going to happen again.
1: Just send it every like once a year, every year. Yeah, <laughs> really wear him down. I should. Just <laughs> Ron Howard uh,
2: still owns the the rights, if I if I'm not mistaken, right now. So it
1: would have to go to Ron. But
0: sounds like yeah. we got a game plan. Yeah, <laughs>
1: we have a strategy. Perfect. Perfect. Now, what started your love of filmmaking? Star Wars.
2: I was five years old, uh, living in Arizona, when my parents took me to see Star Wars. I was blown away by the experience. It was a life, literally Mm life-changing experience, which is hard to say when you're five years old. (laughs) uh, But it really set the path of my life. I walked out of that theater, uh, and I told my parents I was going to direct movies. And my parents said exactly what they say to any ostentatious little five-year-old. Okay, that's good. (laughs) And the rest of my life has been dedicated to that goal. It never changed, so that it it set the path of, of my life. And I have I've never had a chance to meet George Lucas, and I, I'm still not sure if I'd want to hug him or punch him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I haven't quite figured it out. Hug him, hug him for the originals, and then one just little punch for the prequels.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> yeah. <ruining it. laughs> I love Star Wars and Star Trek, and I was always like, if I had to pick. Am I Wars or Trek? And the prequels really helped me determine. I don't know if you can see all my Star Trek figurines. <laughs> <laughs> and there's more around the studio. It's like half Stephen King, half Star Trek. Can't
2: really show the, the all the Star Wars memorabilia here, or the, the <laughs> ten by ten storage unit I have filled like the end of Raiders and Lost Ark with Star Wars toys. <laughs> uh, but it gets me. And fan battles. I've never really understood. They're both extraordinary right. franchises. Yeah. they're extraordinary storytelling. I have never been a passionate fan of Star Trek, uh, but I have enjoyed that mm-hmm. and think that they both live in their own yeah. world. And, and, and I would love that George Lucas was a fan of Star Trek and mm-hmm. Gene Roddenberry was a fan of Star
0: Wars. I rarely meet people who are horror fans who are also sci-fi fans, too. It's usually like one mm-hmm. or the other. So I love meeting people who like both. <laughs> Seems <laughs> rare.
2: You know, it's fun. For so many years, uh, I thought I was a horror fan. And it wasn't until I I produced a a web series that was sort of uh, an Elvira-like hosted discussion of of horror films when I I really realized I don't particularly enjoy horror films. Mm -hmm. I enjoy suspense and thriller. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's there's a real fine line between them. But it was a real moment of clarity when she was introducing me to all of these horror films. I was thinking, wow, I I don't like any of those. (laughs)
1: Okay. Yeah, I get it now. <laughs> I feel like that so many projects walk that real thin line of horror and thriller, and yeah, I hundred percent agree. I was I was
2: invited very warmly, and, and I'm very grateful for uh, to submit a uh, essay for Stephen King's The Essential Stephen King book. Mm-hmm. And his theme was Stephen King is, and, and each individual who submitted something, you know, finished the sentence it. And to me, it was Stephen King is not a horror writer. And I feel that Stephen's strength is in understanding the human character and Mm -hmm. in really being an anthropologist and studying human psyche and putting normal people into extraordinary, horrific situations. So that's kind of my interpretation of Stephen. He's not even a horror master. He's not really a horror writer. He's a writer about people.
1: He's an I, anthropologist. I that's think... that's a that's a great <laughs> description.
0: Pet Cemetery is probably my favorite example of that. That we've talked about that on our show after we covered that. Just the way he writes grief, and it's not even about the horror. And there are definitely elements in there. that are like, oh my god, this is terrifying. But the parts that get you is the human piece.
2: I think that's the most terrifying book I, I've, I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but you're right; it's about a grieving. Father, it's about the love of his family and the lengths at which he would go to protect that family. And that's where it really hits people, especially if I don't have kids. But if you do have kids, that desperate need to protect and resurrect.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you have also written several books on cinematography, which is why your short is clearly one of the most gorgeous things we've ever watched. Uh, with everyone involved in filmmaking, what captures your passion about cinematography specifically?
2: It's a really interesting question. It, it, it's visual storytelling at, at its purest form. We we talked about the fact that I was a little ostentatious five-year-old who said he's going to be a movie director. I actually started about eight years old when I discovered my mother's 8 millimeter camera hidden away in a desk drawer. And I realized very early on that if I was going to be a good director, I needed to understand what everybody else on the set was doing. So I started early kind of studying every other role. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I started professionally as an actor, uh, then became a writer, then I moved behind the scenes. And I I have done, in the three decades I've been working professionally, every job in production and post, with the exception of stunts, hair and makeup, music, composition and catering. (laughs) I found a secondary passion in cinematography and I stayed longer in that role than I did in any other because it really gets down to the purest form of what makes cinema cinema. It's the camera that separates film from every other art form and it's the visual storytelling that makes movies unique in every other art form. So I found it just a second passion to directing in cinematography and and I Honestly, i stayed there longer than I should have. And I still dabble too much in, into it. People still look at me yeah. you know, more as a cinematographer than they do as a director or producer. And that's sometimes frustrating, but I love it. And I stay very involved in, in that world.
1: Now, you adapted the short poem, Paranoid, A Chant, but you didn't do it the same way most people do, where they get the dollar baby first. You want to tell us how you came about getting <laughs> doing this short?
2: Yeah, it's true. I, I did a whole uh, shoot at first, ask questions later.
0: It's <laughs> great. Um, oh, see, that's the strategy we need for the Dark Tower.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, sorry, I'm, I'm getting off track. <laughs> right,
2: right. So how it came about, I knew about the dollar vapor policy. And, and I knew about it first from uh, Stephen Spignisi's, the Stephen King encyclopedia, but then also the introduction to the, the published screenplay for uh, Shawshank Redemption. Frank Darabont talks about the dollar babies, and I had also owned the VHS copies of The Woman in the Room and uh, The Boogeyman. So I was familiar with this policy that Stephen King had. At the time, I was producing a whole number of, of projects, uh, and, and part of my low-budget, independent producing theory was to group projects together together. So that we could share resources so we have one camera package among multiple we have one insurance package among multiple we have one crew that bounces between them so at the time it was i think three spec commercials and three short films if i'm remembering right plus a, a large series of tests for american cinematographer magazine and we had a certain window of time that we were doing all of this and i realized that at the very end of this there was a sunday that was we didn't have anything scheduled. <laughs> And I was like, well, I'm going to direct something. And then I thought, okay, so I have one day. I want something that's really strong writing-wise. Well, what's the strongest thing writing-wise? I'm a huge fan. You know, I'm a constant reader for sure. What can I do? And then I remembered the poem, Paranoid, which I loved when I first read. It had a massive effect on me. When I was a, an actor in high school uh, competing in speech and theater, I used it as a speech piece performing. That's uh, awesome. Uh, And did very well with it. So I had, you know, it was near and dear in my heart. And then I also used it as an audition piece as an actor for for quite a while. Most people don't know, but in my very brief stint in film school before I dropped out to work, I made an eight millimeter version of Paranoid that screened at one festival. It won won the festival and I was very proud of that. Uh, Nobody has ever seen it beyond that. I sent it to Stephen, but I don't know if he ever got it. Mm -hmm. So I had this one day and I thought, well, this poem, I'm, I'm going to make this, I'm going to make parent. But I only had about two weeks of prep time to do it. So I had no time to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't have, I didn't have time to write him a letter yeah. or to try to, and I just thought, I, I know that this policy exists. I'm going to shoot it, finish it. I'll send it to him and, and see what he says. And worst case scenario, he says, kid, you know, go screw yourself. And <laughs> <laughs> I, that I is, haven't lost too much.
1: That is uh, wild. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, <laughs> so you shot that in one did, day? Yes, yeah, the, the
2: main body of it, everything with Tanya was shot in one day. Uh, all of the black and white inserts were shot each night over the course of the week. I literally was, was working every day, either shooting another one of the projects or producing. And then I would come home, I would download all of the equipment into my apartment. I would do one or two shots completely alone, all by myself go sleep for a couple hours, reload all the equipment back up in the morning and then go do another shoot. And that's kind of how I built Paranoid. <laughs>
1: that's wild. I
0: don't want to bring down the mood, but I haven't done enough. <laughs> I <in my life. laughs>
1: was a lot younger
2: and uh, uh, a lot more uh, crazy. And um, I, I just really, I really wanted to to push what I could do. And I know that I couldn't do it all in one day, especially those visual moments. So it was, it was literally a shot or two at night trying to get as much done as I could before we did the main body. of it. Yeah.
1: Now, for anybody who hasn't read it, and they should, how would you summarize what Paranoid is about? It is. Uh, it's a 100
2: line poem. So it's written in verse form from the first person perspective of a paranoid schizophrenic. And you get to experience the torment that they are experiencing from their own perspective. And auspiciously, it is a diary entry or a journal entry of one of the 500 notebooks that are ready to go to the CIA.
0: So so it's, it's clear why you chose Paranoid. So if you were going to do another Dollar Baby or it had happened differently, is there another one that you would have enjoyed adapting? Or was Paranoid just always it for
2: you? oh man, there are, there are really so many Stephen King novellas and, and shorts that I love very much. The Long Walk is oh, something. Yes. <laughs> that would be great. So, okay, so I'm just being totally open door uh, revealing. There was also a, a, an agenda to making Paranoid in that about a year prior to that, I had a wonderfully long conversation with Frank Darabont about Stephen King, a mutual love for Stephen King. And Frank and I both talked about our love for The Long Walk. And he had said at that point, he's like, I, I would love to make this, but I can't, I can't make it longer than an hour. I just can't stretch this. It, it doesn't work. So it has to be in a one-hour format. And I said, well, wh- why couldn't it be you know, in a TV series? And he said, well, you can't just do a one-off. And so I had this in the back of my mind to pitch a show that was a number of one-hour adaptations of Stephen King films. And Paranoid was kind of like, oh, I could make this and and get my in, you know, get my in to Steven and then, you know, build that up. Mm -hmm. And it took me a few years to, after I sent him Paranoid, to have a little bit of back and forth with him and then sent him some of the other work that I was doing. By the time I had actually pitched that show idea, they had just inked the deal on Nightmares and Dreams. Oh, literally missed it by like two weeks and that was his response was like this is a great idea but i i just signed the the agreement on this and it it kind of broke my heart but i would still love to do an adaptation along with
0: you're kind of breaking my heart because all of your ideas and the things that you want to tackle i want to happen so badly they're i know me too (laughs) i'm just so
1: You've gained a powerful advocate in CM now.
0: I can be very annoying.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So one of the things that I loved about Paranoid was that it's such a chaotic style, but it's still very easy to follow. How did you land on that visual storytelling style?
2: That evolved. Initially, uh, the way that I designed the film visually was everything that was real or that I'm calling real because it's all from her perspective, but but everything that, that is real world was in color. And then everything that was her point of view or her delusions uh, was shot in black and white. And uh, Eric Totsi uh, was my editor for Paranoid. And we sat and cut the film and put our first cut together and sat back and watched it. And it, it just wasn't right. It, it wasn't feeling right to me. Everything was there exactly the way that you know I had written and designed, but it just wasn't Something wasn't right. And I went home that night and I was driving home trying to ponder, you know, what else could we do and and what was missing? And I started thinking about the films that I really loved and the films that really affected me. And one of them that hit me was David Fincher's Seven. And even more specifically, the title sequence to David Fincher's Seven. Yeah. Oh man, I'm blanking on the filmmaker's uh, name who did that title sequence, Tim something. But I went home that night and I rewatched that title sequence and I said, that's it. And I brought in the DVD the next day into the edit session with Eric and I said this, the, the energy of this and we sat and we watched it and he just immediately got it and was like, okay, we got it. And he dove in and he started building in those step printing concept and, and the repositioning and a little bit of negative and built that frenetic energy into it that created Really, the the feel that I wanted, but I didn't know that I, how to you know, t- <laughs> yeah. how to achieve until I saw that. And then I, I I have to give incredible credit to both Alec Vila, who did the sound design, and the unbelievable Buck Sanders, who did the score, to really kind of bring all mm-hmm. of that together and, and create that visceral kind of effect.
0: That is such a fascinating story because so often you know being a horror movie lover, which I definitely am. I watch a lot of things and there are varying degrees of good and fun, we'll say. <laughs> and any anytime something falls short, I feel like there are instances where you can see, wow, this look at what they were trying to do and look at what they thought of and you see so much potential there, but maybe the editing was kind of weird or the sound is weird or it's just not the right score. It doesn't give it the right, like you were saying, energy and feel. And it's it's just fascinating to hear how you all work together and kind of build off each other's skills to bring that vision to life.
2: I, w- I was really, really lucky, especially to, to land on Buck. But Alec, I had worked with him previously. He had done a score for a previous short film that I had done And he was really interested in getting into sound design. So I was excited to use him for that. And I didn't know where to go for a composer. And we happened to myself and a friend of mine had happened to become friendly with Marco Latrami, who's an extraordinary composer. And I went to Marco and said, Hey, do you have any recommendations? And he said, yeah, I got this young guy working with me, Buck Sanders, toss it to to him and see what he thinks. And, And Buck was phenomenal. And like he got it instantly and you know, since. Buck has gotten an Academy Award nomination. I mean, he's done wow. extraordinary work in, in, in films. He's he's brilliant. And, and Marco is as well as brilliant. The two of them have worked together as a team for many, many years.
1: Where did you find your actress for this?
2: Uh, she was a student at the high school that I was uh, teaching at uh, yeah. many, many years ago. So hmm. uh, the, the high school that I graduated from, I created a program to teach uh, the theater technicians as professionals, and I was hired the year after I graduated to come back as an addendum teacher and to teach that program. And she was a student in the in the drama department at the time that I was the technical director and addendum teacher. Uh, so we met and became friendly then. She was kind of in the back of my mind when I was decided to recreate this. And the night after I said, hey, I'm going to do Paranoid, my girlfriend at the time became my wife. And I went out to dinner and we happened to run into Tanya. I was like,
1: you, I, I just <laughs> <laughs> you. <laughs>
2: Will you, you do this thing? She was like, yeah, of course I would love doing that. And that. It was like, this is kismet.
1: No kidding. Awesome. In the small town of LA, just running yeah. into the person that you're thinking You conjured thinking her. Of. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> Can I tell you the the image that always jumps, that jumped into my head after I watched Paranoid for the first time, were the handprints coming out of the toilet bowl. For some reason, just horrified me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a crazy moment. Cause she's in the middle of saying it's when her, her paranoid schizophrenia is really ramping up and she's saying just ludicrous things now mm-hmm. and mentions doing a reverse Shawshank up her toilet and crawling out. And just that, that shot of those <laughs> fingerprints on the toilet haunted me.
2: Oh, I love that. Makes me so happy. I love <laughs> to hear that. There's also a, a lot of people that theorize that that's, you know, the, the, Dark man with no face uh, connects back to the Dark Tower series. But that's the tie-in of paranoid to mm. to the man in black to Walter. I don't know if that's necessarily King's intention, but
0: it can be. Yeah, I, right. I will shoehorn in any any tie back to <laughs> the, the Dark Tower.
1: Yeah. God, the the faceless men also very creepy.
0: <laughs> kind of going back to our earlier discussion, you know, and making a dollar a baby. We're talking about adapting and our favorites and things that we would like to see redone it's interesting to talk to dollar baby filmmakers because some express you know it's intimidating because you know that the fans are so attached to that source material and you don't want to upset them but you also want to bring your unique style and what you have to offer to the project too so many things that work on paper don't necessarily work for the visual medium how do you? How did you determine how you were going to do things and any changes that you might make? And Not necessarily even for this, but just when you're adapting something.
2: I've done a bit of adaptation that hasn't been produced. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, James Cole, who's, who's another dollar baby, mm-hmm. who I'm currently working on a project with, uh, and we did a, a short film together. He and I worked on an adaptation of a, of a book uh, that never went to fruition, but. I learned an extraordinary amount through that process. It is truly an adaptation. They are different mediums. So what exists in prose and what exists in film are are two entirely different entities. What what I believe is the best way to make the adaptation is to get to the author's spirit, to what you love about that material, and be true to that. Mm -hmm. It's not being true to the exact prose. It's not being true to the dialogue. It's being true to the spirit of that story and maintaining that. That's what I think needs Mm -hmm. to go into a good adaptation. Uh, It's also understanding that, again, it's the human experience. It's not, especially when we talk about Stephen King, it's not about the scary. It's not about the gross out. It's about truly creating a human experience and allowing the the audience to go through this horrific experience with this person. You know, that's where I think you know, Rob Reiner's Misery does that so well, is that we truly experience the horrors of Annie Wilkes through the Paul Sheldon character on film the same way that we did in the book. and it, it works really, really well.
1: Can I bounce off you the what we theorized about the Misery book and movie? Oh, please. So in the book, they talk about, would he ever tell the story? And he says, no, because I, I'm an author. I'd feel like I had to exaggerate. So our theory is the movie is what actually happened. The book is how Paul Sheldon wrote the events of what happened.
0: Kathy Bates brought a sympathy yeah. to Annie that's not quite, unless you're me and there's something probably wrong <laughs> with me, it's not present in the book. Like maybe it's hinted at or maybe certain people just read into that, but it feels more of a a natural kind of human. She seems more like a person and not this crazy creature, which I love that part of the book. But, you know, I assume on film, too, it works better to humanize her in a way.
2: Yeah, I totally That's a very fascinating concept. I, it would take me a little while to wrap my head around that <laughs> and really discuss it a little bit more intelligently. Or a couple of drinks, maybe.
0: <laughs> we, I guess we just want your blessing for that right. idea.
2: <laughs> we, yeah, we want you to sign off. No.
1: Yeah, all right. Yep, cool. sign off on that. I think it's brilliant. Uh,
2: and in the, you know, the the alternate time of some of parallel universe, that's exactly how it played out.
0: Perfect. <laughs> so speaking of the human experience, and you were just talking about this with adapting things, but is that what you wanted the viewers to get out of paranoid to connect? with her and kind of understand what she was going through and be afraid of that mental health issue with and for her?
2: Absolutely. Uh, Mental health is something that has always been extraordinarily fascinating to me. You know, our perception of reality is really just that. It's a perception of Mm -hmm. reality. Everything that we experience is experienced through our brain interpreting the world around us. And if our brain interprets the world around us differently than somebody else does, it's still our reality. So I I have a lot of empathy and fascination for that. And a lot of the work that I've done kind of explores that idea of the unreliable narrator or Mm -hmm. somebody who is mentally disturbed and experiencing through their thoughts and experiences. So yes, I wanted the audience to to empathize with the tortures uh, of this character, which is part of the reason why I made it a woman Mm -hmm. instead of a man think most people when they read the poem just assume that it that it's a man but I felt that making the character a woman immediately added a bit of empathy to what she was experiencing as opposed to a distance of oh god this guy's just nuts yeah, and sure. I that's what I wanted I wanted us to empathize and relate and moments of Holy cow, she is nuts. But also <laughs> moments of wow, I've had thoughts like that. And mm-hmm. that cabbie did watch me. And am I paranoid about that? Or <laughs> did that really happen? That's kind of what I wanted to achieve with that.
0: You you did because they're watching that. There are moments where I empathize with her so much that I'm telling myself what she's seeing is real. I'm kind of tricking myself. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. That, that guy's out there and he's after her because, you you know, I don't know, it's a weird, messed up, like, I want to support her. Right, you want to trust her because <laughs> yeah. like,
1: she she is a victim mm-hmm. and you want to help, <laughs> you want to <Yeah>. support her.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's probably not the way to do it. Right,
2: yeah. <laughs> oh, man, you, you might make me cry from that. That that's, oh. that affects me in my warm, gooey center. I appreciate that. That's, I love hearing that.
1: Can you tell us uh, any other stories from set uh, during this erratic one day shoot? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yeah, probably my, my, my favorite story from set is the, and I'll try to make this short, is the um, dung beetle. So uh, originally I wanted a cockroach crawling on the floor. It's just, it's just creepy, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody gets freaked out by cockroaches. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, there's no cockroaches around my home. So I'm like,
1: where <laughs> am I going to get a cockroach?
2: <laughs> and I, tra- I called an insect wrangler uh, and I got a quote and the quote was going to be $3,000. Oh my wow. God. Three roaches. It's $1,000 a roach. I'm like, what the hell? Uh, <laughs> i like, no, that's not going to happen. And during the course of the week, we were shooting in Griffith Park on another project. And I happened to see this dung beetle crawling on the on the ground like oh my god that's so cool it's so crazy. how do i what do i wow what do i do Uh, and was it the art director i I don't remember it was natasha who fashioned this uh, envelope out of a sheet of paper and scooped up the dung beetle and a buddy that he had and some dirt and a little dung and, and made this little envelope and was like here and so i like took these dung beetles home and i put them in a little jar And then when it came time to shoot the first shot with them, which is just crawling on the floor, there's a a focus rack and they're crawling on the floor. I took one of the beetles out and I put it on the grounds. I put a solo cup over it and kind of dragged it into the position and then you know went to camera and I hit roll and then I lifted the cup up and I just prayed that it was crawling towards me and I did uh, four or five six or seven takes of that you know catching it under the cup and sliding it back into position kind of it a little bit so that it, it got in position and then letting it go and eventually I got it like oh yeah okay catch it put it back in the jar and then I went to set up for the next shot, which was going to be it crawling behind my toilet. And it was really disgusting and nasty behind mm-hmm. it. it. was all just dirty as hell. And it just looked nasty. And I went back to the jar and this dung beetle is on its back and its <gasps> legs are kicking in the air. And I thought, oh my God, I killed it. Oh, That's so cool. <laughs> and I dumped it out of the jar and I put it on the ground and it's on the ground and it's kicking. <laughs> it looks like it's writhing and just absolute pain and I shot that shot it's one of my favorites in the piece and I did this pan across and I shot a bunch of versions of it I put it back in the jar and the next day I went back and it was totally fine it's just crawling around in the jar doing great I I don't know what happened but I do know what happened so after I released them out in the wild I found out I don't remember how long maybe a year later that certain species of beetles when they are threatened mortally can spontaneously give birth
1: oh what (laughs) So,
2: me trapping this thing and dragging it around scared <laughs> the hell out of it, and it actually was giving birth. So, in the shot where it's upside down, you can actually see there's an egg sac
1: coming out of
2: it in, in the shot, which I love now. And, you know, I let them go. They, they lived out in the wild. No Beatles were truly harmed <laughs> in making this film, and, and I'd like to think that they named one of them beetles after me
0: <laughs> i was gonna ask how much you charged yourself for wrangling that beetle but i think <laughs> that beetle should have charged you for that scene right for the
2: trouble yeah, yeah. It, but it has
1: great stories to tell the, the grandchildren uh, that's true
0: that's the best story i've, I've <laughs> ever heard
1: i'm gonna go back and pause that shot to see if i, to see if I can see it now, you also you had an incredible response from the man himself, Stephen King, after he watched your Dollar Baby. Can you tell us what that call was like?
2: Yeah, that was a pretty extraordinary moment. So, I, I after I finished the, the film entirely, uh, I sent him a VHS tape and a letter uh, asking his permission to show it. And it was only a couple of weeks later that uh, my wife and I were, were going out. It was we were still. Dating at the time, but it was going to be date night. We were going to go out, and um, I was brushing my dog in the hallway. It's, uh, whatever. And the phone rang. Oh, That detail is so not necessary. I, you,
0: you are painting us a word yeah. picture, and I love it. Right. Right.
2: So the phone rings, and, and uh, my girlfriend comes around the corner, just pale, like she saw a ghost. And she hands me the phone and it says, "I think it's Stephen King." Oh my god. And I read. Just slowly took the phone from her, and, and I, "Hello, Jay." it's Steve King. And you know, the, the voice is unmistakable. Mm-hmm. And I, I had to go walk and go sit down. And I was like, well, uh, Mr. King, it's a, it's a pleasure to hear from you. He So call me Steve. <laughs> and we had, we had a great, great conversation. He said, you know, you've got a great film. I like it, which melted my heart. He asked about, you know, where I was in the business and where it was in my career and what was happening. And we, we talked a bit about that. I, because I was a nerd and the internet was new at that time. I asked him, do you mind if I put this online? And he said, yeah, sure. I don't see any problem with that. Uh-huh. And of course, once Art Green, his lawyer, uh, heard about that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had a small kitten. But Stephen was, was true to his word, so there was a compromise. You know, Art Green said, no, 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 you cannot do that. <laughs> well, I told the kid that I could, so uh, they gave me eight months Wow! to have it online. At that time, iFilm was the thing. Online, that's where all the short films were. So it went on to iFilm and hit one of the tops and and did great there. But unfortunately, I ruined it for all the rest of the dollar babies, whoever came beyond that. (laughs) uh, Because it was built into the agreement, basically, from then on, that you're not allowed to be online. So sorry, guys. (laughs) We we had a, a really great conversation. And I had told him that I had talked to his people prior about inquiring about rights, and they were very aggressive with me. And he said, well, yeah, they, they can be kind of dragon-like. And he said, if, if there's anything you want, come to me. Wow. And so that opened a, a you know a door that I tried to continue over the course of the years. And we had a number of conversations, usually over fax or, or, or by letter, never another phone call, but talking about other, other projects and keeping him updated on the work that I was doing. And he's been extraordinarily supportive of this little film. I, I, I really can never express the depths of my gratitude for his support. He allowed it to be on a DVD with a magazine that got 30,000 copies released. Wow. It, it, the support it is, is phenomenal. And, and I really, really deeply appreciate
0: it. I can't imagine Stephen King calling me. Yeah. <laughs> well, in this day and age, been... you
1: would deny the call because it's a number you didn't oh, recognize. Oh yeah, that's true.
0: <laughs> I would send him the voicemail. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right,
2: right, Exactly. Are you a telemarketer? <laughs> yeah. I was, I was very lucky uh, in, in a lot of respects. First of all, um, there weren't a whole flood of dollar babies being made at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still probably somewhere around 18, 19, 20 that were made around the time that Paranoid was made. When I sent him the tape, he, had, he was just leaving to go to Florida to spend some vacation time and happened to you know drop it in his briefcase. So he had the free time to watch it. He had the free time to, to call. It, it was really just serendipity that it all kind of aligned yeah. And I'm, I'm lucky.
0: So we've heard Stephen King's response to your film, and you've heard ours, which is like, way less exciting than Stephen King's. But <laughs> what has <None> been, <laughs> What has the reaction been from other people who've had the opportunity to see it and from the people who were involved?
2: I, I guess uh, I've always been very lucky that people have been extraordinarily supportive and uh, really excited about this adaptation and whether that's honest or they're just blowing sunshine it, I, i've always had a positive response to this i don't think i've ever heard anybody really be negative about it from david wilde of rolling stone magazine giving an extraordinary review to this film to the fans that have seen it uh, at the festivals it, it's always been really supportive and, uh, and i'm super grateful of, of that even so much so that, you know, as these festivals continue to happen 20 years later, uh, people are still requesting this film. It's 20 years old. Because of that, I went back and did a complete remastering uh, of the film two years ago to have now
1: a high-definition version mm. of it. So that I'm not embarrassed when it screams
0: <laughs> at festivals <with> newer films.
1: <laughs> yeah, I never would have guessed it was 20 years yeah, old. Yeah,
0: it looks gorgeous. It, yeah. it deserves all of the the praise that it has been given. You mentioned earlier that you have dabbled in so many different, well, probably not dabbled. That sounds like you're messing around. You have <laughs> tackled so many different roles in this medium. Do you have a a particular project, whether it's the project itself that's kind of more near and dear to you or your favorite, or it was the the role you were actively playing at that moment that it holds a special place in your heart? Do you have something else that of yours that you really enjoy?
2: Absolutely, the first one that comes to mind. I was a visual effects test cinematographer for Steven Spielberg on Minority Report. I spent almost a month working on that film, and Spielberg is a you know an idol of mm-hmm. mine. And uh, to have the chance to to have my work you know influence his decisions uh, was was extraordinary. That was a huge watershed moment for me all of <laughs> all of the work that I did got thrown out on day one because Janusz Kaminski uh didn't like the, the the rig that it created but it was <laughs> still an extraordinary Jeez. extraordinary moment. <laughs> the the next really kind of watershed moment for me because I'm such a Star Wars fan I, I got to spend four months with Craig Frazier and Baz win and John Favreau on The Mandalorian season one Awesome. in a very unique position, writing a, a, a white paper on the technology for Lucasfilm. That was an unbelievable experience mm-hmm. for me to be in the Star Wars world and, and to be kind of connected to that, to meet the child before anybody else had ever seen it. So yeah, those two moments are were, were huge, having nothing to do with directing. <laughs> um, they, were, they were big career moments for me.
0: I imagine that because you are interested in in, in willing and obviously good at doing so many different things that that has provided unique opportunities you might not have otherwise had. Do you have any advice for other individuals who are not even just dollar babies, but people who have that creative spirit, but don't quite know how to you know, jump into something like this? Do you have advice for them?
2: The advice is kind of the same advice that I think everybody gives, which is just get out there and do it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: There, there's really no excuse today's day and age for not getting out and creating work and creating films. When I was... When I was a young lad. Um,
0: <laughs> it only makes you sound old if you do it in that voice. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I tell you, honey, when I was young. Um, when I was coming up and coming up as a cinematographer and coming up as a, as a director, the digital didn't exist yet. So everything was 35 millimeter film for me. So in order to go out and shoot something, I had to acquire the film. I had to acquire, uh, you know, cameras that were two hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars, lens packages that were a hundred thousand dollars worth of glass, and, and you know, all of the grip and lighting gear that it took to to do that. Then I had to get a lab to develop it. Then I had to get a post house to do the transfers. It was an extraordinary effort to make something like Paranoid. Whereas today, everybody has a phone and a camera in their mm-hmm. pocket; they can make anything and tell stories, and don't be intimidated by the technology, just dive in and start telling stories. I wish I spent more time earlier in my career focusing on directing instead of three decades focusing on everything else. I feel like I'm a little bit late to the game to finally become a professional director, you know, about a decade ago. And I wish that I would have spent more time doing that. And I think I would have been a little further along. So get out there and make things.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that's great advice. And a lot of people do share that that's really the the primary key to doing this. But I don't think you can hear that too many times.
1: Absolutely. We've talked about your projects, so some dream projects. What is it that interests you right now? What is next for Jay Holden?
2: Actually, what's next for me is a, is a project that I'm working on with James Cole. Jim is another dollar baby. He made the last rung on the ladder. And we met originally through the dollar baby community. And after I had made Paranoid, I was looking for my next project. And I was lucky enough that uh, Stephen Jones had done a book called Creep Shows that included, it was all about Stephen King films, and he included Paranoid in that. And I was, I was doing a book signing with Steve Jones and a bunch of other, Mick Garris. Oh, man, I forgot who else was there. A bunch, bunch of other Stephen King kind of filmmakers. And uh, Jim was there at that signing. And, and he asked, you know, what are you doing next? And I said, I'm looking for a, a short. And he said, I have a short story. yeah, sure, whatever, send it to me. And it turned out to be this extraordinary story about these boys in a hospital the night before their surgery, and I fell in love with it, and we made that film. He then gave me this feature that he wrote that I fell in love with, and I have been in love with this thing for 20 years, but I've also been afraid of it. It's it's a complex and expensive story, but I just made the decision uh, a month ago, that this is going to be my next project. So we're going back to this script that he wrote. He and I and are and are in a rewrite and, a, and are in a polish on this script now. And this is the next project that I'm going to do is this extraordinary feature that Jim wrote called Stereopticon. It's an amazing coming of age
1: time travel story. Oh my god! I'm <laughs> well, in time travel. I'm in. I'll send you my audition. <laughs> you just you Every let me know.
0: Every time <laughs> he does, I apologize. <laughs> Where, where can our listeners keep up to date with that project and your other projects and follow you and, and just keep up with what you're doing?
2: I am an Instagram whore. <laughs> uh, okay. That's mostly, I mean, you can find me pretty much anywhere at Jay Holden, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I spend most of my time probably on, on Instagram. So it's at Jay Holden or my website is jayholden.com. I'm not very unique about these sort of usernames. <laughs> uh, you can stalk me and find me there. But the, the IGs is really where I, I probably put most of my focus. My I love that you guys do this. I love the opportunity to, to talk about this little film. This community of dollar babies is truly extraordinary. And really, this policy of Stephen King is unique and, and extraordinary and amazing. There is no benefit to Stephen whatsoever to do this, except the love of film and the support of filmmakers. And it's truly, I keep saying extraordinary, but it's truly extraordinary mm-hmm. that he does this. At the regret of everybody, all of his representation and all of his lawyers <laughs> and the complexities of this and the problems that it creates, he's created a wonderful world that is now, God, I don't know, and twenty hundred and thirty of these shorts now. And and it's amazing. And I cannot express enough gratitude to Stephen for continuing this policy and continuing this unique support of filmmakers um, and uh, personally, uh, you know, support of me uh, that I'm deeply grateful for uh, and for what you guys are doing, continuing to support Stephen and the constant readers out there. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Yeah, we're we're all very lucky that he recognizes the value of allowing people, you know, within reason, to appreciate his work in their own way and and kind of support it by making it their own in a way, too. Respectfully, you know, yeah. hopefully.
2: <laughs> also, your haikus were, were amazing.
0: <laughs> Thank you so <laughs> much. I loved them. <laughs> that, that was an accident. We were just <laughs> like, oh, this will be fun. And then they started reading them. That and- was-
1: it's because I'm as I just interjected trying to get cast in your movie, uh, <laughs> right. as, you, as you've experienced. I can't passively enjoy anything. I have to be involved. <laughs> so I we we did the interview with James and Norm, and I was like, "All right, I, I, we're gonna watch along. We're gonna tweet along. I want to keep the hashtag going. How can I do that?" Oh, uh, we did a uh, we watched season two of Castle Rock uh, and live tweeted it, and I did haikus for those and i and the the showrunner liked one of them and i was like i've made it I've made i'm it. famous <laughs> and so i That's was like the, like who doesn't love a good haiku and so i did it and then they they read the first one and i was like well now we're in
0: it, it was, <laughs> now we have
1: to do it all the time
0: it was weirdly <laughs> stressful though what cuz of course we haven't, hadn't seen any of the dollar babies and some are very short and so josh and i were like okay we we have to be ready and we're like trying to watch it and create something. Yeah. <laughs> and then sometimes we'd have to mix ours because one of us or both of us couldn't think of a first line or a last line. And it was wild. Yeah, it was so
1: crazy. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Please join us for our next episode. For C.M. Alexander and Jay Holden, this is Joshua Kahn reminding you, be true to the author's spirit, not just the prose.
0: Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to our paranoid interview with Dollar Baby director Jay Holben. Please follow Jay and check out his upcoming projects at Jay Holben on Instagram or jholben.com. That is J A Y H O L B E N.com. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.